This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hi, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Allison Wilgus. And I'm Gina Gagliano. Previously, we've talked about trade publications, which are mostly meant for other industry people. But today, we're going to talk to Petra Mayer, uh, editor of NPR Books, about reviews and book coverage, which are meant for a general audience. Petra, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, how you started working with comics, and what you're doing now? Yeah. Hi. So uh, as you said, I'm an editor with NPR Books. My focus is fiction, um, specifically genre fiction. So uh, fantasy, sci-fi, speculative fiction, mysteries, thrillers, comics, young adult, Jane Austen fanfic, which is actually a genre. Uh, Basically all the fun stuff. Oh, and romance. Dicer romance. I love romance. It's very good. Uh, And what I do is I commission and edit online book reviews. Um, That's the bulk of my job. So I'm typically planning anywhere from three to six months ahead, looking at catalogs and listening to my reviewers about what they're interested in to kind of curate a selection for uh, NPR.org's readers. Um, I also am occasionally an on-air reporter and do whatever else they need me to do around here. And as for how I got started working with comics, uh, it was kind of a natural progression. I mean, I've just always been a comics nerd. You know, like I started working with comics when I was 14 and my, you know, older friends in high school handed me their old Sandman and Swamp Thing and Black Orchid comics. So how did you go from there to getting a job at NPR? Ah, um, (laughs) so I will tell you this story with the caveat that this is not how it works now, (laughs) because I am old and I've worked at NPR forever. Then we might ask you about how it works now afterwards. (laughs) Sure. Uh, It was my college job. Um, I was involved with my college radio station and uh, somehow found myself uh, as the chief engineer of this radio station, knowing exactly nothing about how to maintain a crumbling analog station that hadn't been properly looked after since the 70s. Uh, And I was like, ah, I got to get a job real fast where they'll teach me what I need to know. And I lucked into a job in the maintenance shop at NPR, uh, cleaning pinch rollers on reel-to-reel tape decks and rewiring the PA system. Yeah, uh, <laughs> That sounds amazing. It was actually pretty fun. Those, The guys in the shop are still some of my best friends at NPR. And that kind of got my foot in the door. And from there, I sort of had this very roundabout path uh, to a member station, to grad school for journalism, to Radio Free Europe in Prague, and then back to NPR. Uh, And then I spent 12 years as a radio producer, primarily on Weekend All Things Considered. And towards the end of that, I sort of established myself as the Weekend ATC books person, uh, because at that time we had a host who was a voracious reader, and he would do two book interviews a week. um, And I sort of made that my domain. From there, I jumped to uh, to the arts desk, to online uh, and running online book coverage. And we didn't really cover a lot of comics at that point. And I sort of felt like that was an audience that we were not serving that that needed to be paid attention to. So can you talk about what the difference is between being a producer and being an editor? Sure. Being a producer is kind of the, I want to say functional side of it. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out a way to say this that isn't dismissive of either side because I've been both and they're both very necessary to the process of making radio. uh, Both producers and editors will generate ideas. Um, 
once a story is assigned, the producer is the person who will, you know, if it's an interview, we'll book the guest, we'll record the interview, we'll cut it down. The editor is the person who will listen to that and suggest changes. If you're a reporter, you know, a producer will help you gather your audio or mix the story down for you. The editor is the person who will go over your script and make sure that it, that it's the best story it could possibly be. Also, it's interesting because there's both like the radio side of this, but also there's like the online periodical, like a side of this. So yes. I feel like there's two very different kinds of being an editor that are involved. Yeah, certainly. In this. I'm also both a web editor and a web producer, so I edit the book reviews, but then I also go into our content management system and build the web page that they live on. So that's that's the distinction on the digital side. You're wearing a lot of hats. Oh yeah, it's a good thing I like hats. <laughs> <laughs> So if that's not how people today get jobs at NPR, how how does that work now? I mean, I hate saying this uh, because it's not a path that's available to everyone, but internships. When I was first coming up, the way to do it was, you know, and this is advice that I was given by people who had been at the network for a long time, was go to a member station, make your name there, and then come back. So that's kind of what I did. Nowadays, get your foot in the door through an internship once we know you. <laughs> you know, it's almost like the mafia. Like, once you're in, you're never out. Because if, you, if you're here and you're good, there will always be a place for you. And we actually pay our interns uh, because they are essentially junior producers. So I think internships at NPR are a much more viable choice for people who maybe don't have the resources than like unpaid internships elsewhere would be. But again, I say this recognizing that it is not a path that everyone can take. Also, I, I feel like a lot of the time, like if you listen to NPR shows or other kind of large scale podcasts, even they'll often mention like, hey, we're looking for interns this summer. Like that's a thing that I, I feel like I've heard people mention. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We we like to put the calls out as broadly as possible. And we get just Great people, man. When our cur uh, The current intern on the arts desk is so good. When she's gone, I'll be so sad. Liz Metzger, you're the best. Never leave us. So when we were talking to Calvin uh, at Publishers Weekly, uh, like we were talking a lot about how trade reviews and trade publications and kind of who those are for. So when you're sort of working on NPR books, like who do you see as your audience? Anyone who wants my content. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, yo. Uh, we tend to think of ourselves as a recommendation engine. So if you are an eager reader, you're my audience. If you want to know about really cool books, you're my audience. Uh, and we do run negative reviews. Um, and I think that's part of our public service duty. Like, I don't try to drag people, especially not if they're like baby authors. But, uh, you know, I think our readers deserve to know if a big, important book is bad. But generally, we're a recommendation engine. You know, we want to help people discover their new favorite book. That's a really general answer, but I think I'm aiming for a really general audience. Can you read? You're my audience. Well, I think that's really important for, for comics. Like, I remember, uh, uh, full disclosure, y'all uh, covered my book when it came out in February, and it was really nice for me because definitely a lot of people found it who would not have found it otherwise because you're aiming at a general audience of readers. Like, I feel like people sort of trust you to maybe guide them toward a genre they don't normally read. Yay, that makes me so happy. I have to confess, I remember that review, and I need to read your book, and I still have it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're taping this conversation on November the 6th, and 
I think I said this on Twitter a couple of days ago, like last night was literally the first time since May that I had had a chance to sit down and read a book that I did not have to read for work. Now, I was going to say, like, you've got a lot on your plate (laughs) book wise. It's not bad. Like, I don't regret that, you know, I had to read Daniel Jose Alder's book because I was doing an event with him. The book was great. And he is the bomb diggity. He was so fun. But like, sometimes I want to choose what I'm reading myself. So like last night, I sat down and housed Steel Crow Saga. Like it was 2.30 in the morning and I looked up and went, I'm almost done with this book. Might as well finish it. It was so good. Yeah, I think what you've talked about is exactly what I want to do. I want to get cool books into people's hands, especially books that they wouldn't have otherwise thought about trying. Um, And I also hope that readers understand, particularly with genre fiction coverage, that we are coming from a place of expertise and true love. You know, a lot of times you'll see coverage in mainstream media outlets of sci-fi, fantasy, romance, et cetera, whatever, and they're kind of holding their nose and going, oh, the mass is like this. Um, But no, we're actually nerds. (laughs) So I hope that comes across, that we, you know, we do what we do because we really, really love the stuff we're talking about. So you've talked about book reviews. Mm Mm-hmm. Where are where are the sort of spaces on NPR, either on the web or on the radio, or you know, you talked also about uh, reports from the convention floor, where a cartoonist themselves or their work might end up showing up. Generally, online reviews and sometimes, like you said, reporting. I mean, those are pretty much the spaces. I, much to my sorrow, have very limited influence over what goes on the radio. (laughs) Um, I wish that I could get people on the radio a lot more than I can. Um, But uh, that is one one way um, that cartoonists can get on the air is to talk to an NPR host. Um, Randall Monroe just had a book out, you know, XKCD, and I think he was on All Things Considered. So that is definitely an avenue. We have a blog called The Picture Show, which focuses primarily on visual art stuff. And that is another place that could be an outlet for cartoonists and uh, and visual art. Also, you mentioned member stations like a friend of the podcast, Melanie Gilman, like they recently did an interview uh, for an NPR member station about their book. So I feel like uh, it's kind of it's coming at from from a diff- much different places, not just like the DC office. Yeah, that's true, and that is something that like that is a project of mine in in the future is to sort of link up more with member stations and think about ways that we can put the spotlight on local authors because that is something I sadly do not have a lot to do with, and I know that there's great stuff out there and ways to connect with people, um, exactly like what you mentioned. So you were talking about how you have to read a lot of things for work. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're covering a lot of books. How are you curating what books end up uh, being featured on the book's homepage with you and your team? Um, So it's a mix um, because there's just so much going on that I can't deal with it all myself. Um, I guess sometimes I compare it to representative democracy, right? Like I employ critics and they submit things to me. I rely on the taste of my critics, honestly. Like that's a lot of where where our content comes from is that, you know, I work with people whose taste I trust, um, whose voices I respect. And when they say, hey, I think this book is really interesting, I look at it and I say, well, I think it looks interesting. And if you think it looks interesting, then it must be interesting. Um, 
And then added to that, um, I am constantly meeting with publicists at trade shows and also just throughout the year they come to D.C. or I see them at events and, you know, looking at catalogs and frequently I'll see something and go, oh, that's perfect for reviewer X. So, yeah, it's a combination of things that my reviewers submit to me and things that I have heard about from publicists or just seen around um, word of mouth sometimes. So that's another thing you're curating is like the team of uh, reviewers that you're working with. So like what kinds of people are you working with and how did you get connected with them? It's a mix. Um, Some of them are people that I inherited from the previous NPR Books editor. Um, Some of them are people that I have brought on. Um, Obviously, when I came into this job, I wanted to bring on a lot more people who could handle genre fiction. Um, And I find them all over the place. (laughs) I find them through, you know, I scour blogs and look for writing that I like. Um, I look for, you know, authors that I like. I see things on Twitter and I go, hey, do you want to write for me? (laughs) Um, You know, one of my most beloved reviewers, um, Amal El Motar, uh, I I found her name in an article on the BBC about Arab sci-fi fans. And I thought, hey, that person looks really cool. I'm going to drop them a line. And she turned out to be brilliant and fabulous. Um, So yeah, I'm like a magpie. I find people all over the place. You mentioned that you're looking to schedule things three to six months before the books get published. So people should not, you know, email you on their book publication date being like, hello, books editor at NPR. No, you should not. Uh, You know, I say three to six months out, there's always holes. Um, that, you know, you never know when I can slot something in. That being said, if you email me on the publication date, it's too late because then I have to, I don't know how other outlets operate, but I um, really try very hard to run a review the week of publication. You know, sometimes I'll move it up or down a week if something is crowded or if it's a smaller book where it doesn't quite matter that we're right there on publication week because not a lot of people are going to have heard about it. Um but, you know, if yeah, if you come to me on pub day and are like, here's my book, and I'll be like, nope, because now I have to find a reviewer, have them read it, have them write it, edit it, produce it. And, you know, that's going to take a week or two. And by which time, mm, nope, too late. Are, is there ever a time where that might not be the case? Like if a book comes out and then immediately gets nominated for some kind of award or if there's some sort of oh sure intense online discussion or something that really brings it into people's attention yeah i mean i sounded very emphatic just now but i mean yeah no it's not a hard and fast rule like you know for a while we had a rule that we wouldn't cover paperback reissues and then it turned out that we'd missed Station Eleven. And I was like, oops. So that's a book that we covered when the paperback came out. So, you know, yeah, you can always try. I might say no, but like, you can always ask me. You, you mentioned earlier how sometimes you publish negative reviews as a kind of public service almost. Are there other kinds of instances of like, this is a newsworthiness issue? Like, it isn't just this book is about to come out, but. There is a capital C conversation or capital M moment happening for this book, and so we feel like we need to feature it for that kind of reason? Oh, absolutely. Although that tends to be a lot more nonfiction, which is not my purview, not anymore. Um, We have a special nonfiction editor who handles it. But yeah, um, especially in the past couple of years, there have been so many newsmaker books. You know, if you've got something like Fire and Fury or... uh, If you have something like Call Sign Chaos, you know, the Jim Mattis book, those are newsmaker books, and people need to know what's in them. So that's the kind of thing that, yeah, we would totally cover. Can you talk a little about 
your summer reading program and your holiday reading program. I feel like those are kind of the the recommendation engine writ large. Yeah, for, for sure. Especially because the ding dang summer reader poll is the reason I'm three years behind on all my comics. This is, there are two big things that we do for year: the summer reader poll um, and the the book concierge, which is our year end thing. The summer reader poll is lots of fun. Um, every summer, we pick a genre. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was comics. And yay! yay. <laughs> and we've done things like, you know, sci fi, kids' books, YA, um, horror. This year, I did funny books. We've done romance. Um, that was a fun one. Um, so we pick a genre and then we put up a Google poll and we ask people nominate your five favorite books or stories in this genre. Um, and then we usually end up with this massive sprawling list of, you know, eight or 10,000 nominations. And I take that list and stay up way too late at night tabulating everything. Because the thing is, you know, we call it the summer reader poll, but it is not a straight popularity contest. You know, if it was a straight ranked popularity contest, we'd end up with kind of an unbalanced, uninteresting list. Because, you know, if you're doing a sci-fi fantasy poll, well, obviously everybody loves Harry Potter, but we want this to be a discovery tool too. So what happens with this raw, huge spreadsheet of votes is that I take it and hack it down to the top 250 vote getters. Um, And then that goes to uh, an expert panel of judges. So that's, you know, three or four people um, who are writers or critics in whatever area we've picked. Um, So this past year, it was the funny books poll. And we had this like amazing murderers row of judges. We had, um, Alexandra Petri from the Washington Post. Um, if you are not from D.C., she's the lady that runs the emo Kyler Wren Twitter account. She's so funny. Um, we had Guy Branham, the comedian. We had Aparna Nancherla, and we had Samantha Irby. And, like, I got to spend three hours on the phone with all these people, which is kind of why I do this, because <laughs> I get to spend hours on the phone with cool people. Um, so the reason they spend hours on the phone is that I send them this semifinal list and they look at it. And then we have this epic conference call where we kind of hack it down and build it back up with suggestions from our judges. And I put a few in myself and we kind of balance and tweak and fiddle until we get this list of a final list of 100, which is not ranked at all. People always think it is. It's not. It's just 100 books and stories that we think are great, that you also think are great, and that we hope you will find something new and awesome to read in this list. Um, And then that goes live, and people really love them. I mean, the engagement time that they spend on the page is insane, and they get passed around for years afterwards. Um, They're really, really fun. Um, So that's the summer poll. And then the book concierge, which I'm actually working on right now, um, came about because... Uh, maybe five or six years ago, we decided that we were really super tired of doing year-end best-of lists. Um, I mean, they're easy, but, like, they're so boring. (laughs) Um, And so we came up with this idea of sort of a a visual matrix of books, dozens and dozens of them, selected by our staff and our critics, and all searchable. Um, This is the cool thing about the concierge. Like when you go to it, it's at npr.org slash best books, by the way. And the new one goes live December 3rd. Uh, The 2018 one is still up there if you want to look at it. Um, So you go and you look at all these books. And on the side of the screen, there's a list of tags. And they're things like comics and graphic novels or book club ideas or funny stuff or ladies first or staff picks. And you can stack these tags up. And the concierge will show you whatever matches the tags you've selected. So you can be like, my comic book club 
because I'm in a comic book club. I am. Uh, my comic book club wants something funny, and maybe it has to have a sci-fi aspect to it, and a female protagonist. And the concierge will show you whatever fits that criteria, and it'll pop up, and you'll see links to all of our coverage, and you'll see a little blurb by whoever recommended it, and you'll see e-commerce links and links to find it at your local library, and even links to member station coverage if we have it. Um, so it's a super cool tool, and you can kill a lot of time working on it. And this year um, actually is going to be the biggest one ever. We've got 350 books, and this year we've actually redone all the back-end architecture to link up all of the years of the concierge going back to 2013. So it's going to be the mega concierge and you can waste mega time on it. So yeah. This is such a gift to readers and authors. This is really an everybody wins situation. We we hope so. I mean, we love making it and we love watching people play with it. And, and, and you know, we sort of, you know, I, I feverishly check Twitter constantly the day it comes out, like watching for people saying like, look, I found this book. <laughs> it makes me really happy. <laughs> I just like to yell excitedly about books. Honestly, that's what I want to hear from somebody who's the book's editor at NPR. (laughs) My proudest moment is like when I match up a book and a reader. Um, I have a friend who I handed an ARC of Gideon the Ninth to earlier this year because I was like... literally just talking about that. I, I I knew that this book was them on a page. I was like, read this book. It is you. And they blew me off. And then they finally read it like six weeks ago. And literally every single word since then out of their mouth has been... I love Gideon. Like, they were Gideon for Halloween. Their Twitter account is full on Gideon all the time. And I'm like, ah, my work is done. Yay. (laughs) Wait, so this is a little bit of a digression, but Mm -hmm. tell us about your comic book club. Uh, Gosh, it's been going, we've been going for a while. Years now. We meet, there's a local... um, a local sort of bar slash bookstore here called the Petworth Citizen that has this back reading room slash bar and we meet there. Um, and it's just a bunch of me and my friends and we have very wide tastes. Like we have a couple of members who are just, you know, just want to read angsty art comics from the 80s. And that is why I have read, read Concrete. And boy, did I not like that. Um, and then we have people who know every single X-Men that ever was. So we try to balance between, um, back and forth between like superhero comics and artsy stuff. And then I'll put in silly things because, you know, the more people that I can make read Next Wave, the happier I am. Oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah, we're reading Yummy Fur this month, but it's super out of print, so nobody can find it. So I I guess this is technically also a digression, but this is like a very nuts and bolts podcast. So Mm -hmm. like our big nuts and bolts question is, can you like take us sort of step by step through how a book goes from somebody has decided this book should be covered on your site and it the review being online where people can read it. Sure. Um, so if somebody decides a book should be covered online, that's usually me <laughs> um, or possibly our nonfiction editor. Um, and the way and do I- you make that decision by like reading it or just from a publicist pitch or are there other, is there like an alchemy of decision? <laughs> it's more of factors? an alchemy. There's just, because we cover so many books in a year, there's just no way that I can read them all. Um, so I will, yeah, the publicist pitch, I'll look at, you know, if there's Kirkus or Publishers Weekly, if I if there's an ARC, I'll look at it. But I tend to rely, you know, like we talked earlier about kind of how I find the people that review for me, and I really rely on them and their tastes, Um you know, like I said, if they think a book is important, I will look at it 
and you know, and if the subject sort of piques my interest and I think it's worthwhile, then yeah, sure, have at it. With the caveat that you may hate it, in which case we have to decide whether it's worth spending the time and effort to do a negative review. So are they? How are they hearing about books? Are you getting pitches from publicists and forwarding it? Can to you them? tell that Gina or... used to be a publicist? <laughs> yes, Gina, it is the publicists. We do rely a lot on publicists. Okay, so they're not like combing Edelweiss and being like. What are the books that are coming out nine months from now? Petra. Well, oh, Edelweiss. Edelweiss is so hard to use, man. I don't actually know. I, I mean, I think most of the publicists I work with have relationships with my reviewers, and so they're getting pitches. Um, I think they probably also get catalogs. I, I know some of them do look on Edelweiss. Um, for me, honestly, it's Book Expo, you know, the big trade show in the summer where the Javits Center is full for a week with publicists and and book booths, and we just have back to back to back to back meetings. That's that's an invaluable tool for me because that's where I scope out what's coming in the next year, what I'm interested in, what I want to take to my reviewers, um, and then if they come to me later in the year and what they want to do matches up with what I've already flagged, well, yay, so much the better. Uh huh. But yes, so yes, Gina, publicists are very important in this process. <laughs> you are, you guys are very useful. I appreciate it. I mean, you guys, you're not a publicist anymore. It's in my blood. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so I've picked a book. Um, and then what happens is the uh, reviewer will get in touch with the publicist, get a copy of the book. They'll read it. Um, I try to get people to file their copy at least a week before the publication date. Ha ha. Most people don't. Um, but that's the next step. You know, they they write the review or in rare cases, they email me and say, I hate this book. And I'll say, well, can you make that into something constructive that the author might find some use from? Or is it just I want to throw this book across the room, in which case, eh, let's not waste our time. Um, but assuming we decide to go with a review, the next step is they file the copy and then I edit it. You know, I'll go through it and, you know, I do all the tiddly biddly AP style stuff. But, you know, I look for structure and flow and voice and misused words and, you know, all the stuff that an editor does. How um, are they filing the copy? Oh, um, some of them share Google Docs with me. Um, some of them email Word Docs. I am old fashioned. I prefer Word Docs because I like the track changes function and I have never really figured out how it works in Google Docs. I'm old. So yeah, they email me Word Docs most of the time. And then I take that and I mark it up and I mail it back to them. Um, and they either approve what I've done or they make changes that I've asked for. You know, usually it doesn't go through more than one or two iterations before we have the final version. Um, and then when I have the final version, um, I drop it into our content management system. And that's where I become, I switch hats from editor to web producer. Um, so what I do is I build a page for that review. And it also includes what we call a book edition, which is a separate kind of page where we slurp in all the metadata from Baker and Taylor, the database company. And that creates an image of the book that you see on the page with the e-commerce info. Um, and what else? I'll also include links if this author has other books that we've covered or we've done other things about this person. I'll include links to other reviews or interviews or any sort of interesting related content. Um, I'll usually put in a poll quote if the reviewer has said something particularly pithy. <laughs> um, 
honestly, the hardest part of that job is writing the headline and the what we call the teaser, which is kind of the secondary copy that you'll see if it pops up on a website. You'll see the headline and you'll see a little bit of copy below it. That's the teaser. Oh, so um, you, you get stuck with that job. Oh, yeah, I got to do that. I, yeah, sure. Why? Other people do that elsewhere? Give me one of those jobs. Oh, God. I hate it. I hate oh, writing headlines. Oh, I hate writing copy. It's the word, It's better when it's for somebody else's book than for mine, but it, it's still a nightmare. The thing that's particularly nerve-wracking about teasers for us is that they, <laughs> once they're published, there's a feed that goes directly to the big ticker on the outside of the NPR news building. So if you have included a screw-up in your teaser... <laughs> It's going to be scrolling along the NPR building like five feet tall. It's mortifying. I don't. Oh, wow. this is, I don't think this ever actually happened to me, but I know that it has happened. I could just imagine like somebody typing it as a placeholder, like I don't know, some fucking title, and then hitting return. Oh God, accident. yeah, that's everybody's nightmare. Yeah, no, yeah, we, we, you know, we put placeholder captions on images, and and we have to be real careful about stuff like that. Um, Placeholders are extremely useful and extremely dangerous. Uh-huh. Yep. So anyways, once I've done that, you know, and and tweaked it all and fiddled the layout and written, you know, the SEO headline too, because we have to worry about that, uh, then it goes to our copy desk um, and then I'll schedule it for publication. And then when it goes live, I'll put it out on our social media feeds, the Twitter, uh, the Facebook. And if I think it's a good thing for Tumblr, I'll put it on Tumblr too. Uh, so that's that's it. So you're handling all of the books social also. Yes. And that's fiction and nonfiction. I run all of the NPR book social. That seems like a big job. It is. I wish that I could spend more time on it because people want to interact with me and I love interacting with people. Like the Friday Reads tag is one of the biggest responses I get all week and people love to tell me what they're reading or they ask me for recommendations and uh, I wish I wish that I could be more responsive. Social media accounts for things like this are so interesting because like half the time it's like run by some intern and half the time it's like, no, it's it's Petra. <laughs> well, it's I it's it's the Twitter feed is either me or it's it's a bot. Um, the other Facebook is sometimes one of my colleagues. Tumblr is always me or it's just not happening. <laughs> Basically, we say the NPR books team. Um, that's me. <laughs> I, we we have a nonfiction editor, and my supervisor uh, does a lot of kind of the negotiation, especially when books are embargoed. Like she does a lot of the stuff that I don't want to deal with, like the lawyers and the NDAs and stuff. But in terms of generating, editing, posting content, uh, it's it's me and our part time nonfiction editor. You mentioned earlier about how you don't obviously have a lot of control over what does or doesn't end up being covered on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as a person who is literally works at NPR, I assume you're pretty aware of what does or doesn't get covered. Uh, so as a person who is not responsible for it, do you have any like kind of trends you've noticed in like the kinds of books that tend to get that sort of uh, radio coverage and like the kinds of authors that tend to get featured in that way? Huh. Especially in comics. Uh, short, short books. <laughs> I mean, I, I say that facetiously, but uh, NPR hosts pride themselves on reading the whole book. So it's got to be one that they can fit into the rest of their schedule. Uh, is there a trend? Um, I mean, I know nonfiction gets featured a lot for like a variety of reasons. I think it's easier to talk about often. It's easier to talk about. 
uh, and it tends to be to have what we call a news peg, which is there's some external reason that we could be talking about this book. But actually, I mean, I have seen more novels getting on the air lately. Um, yeah, it's it's. I don't really have a great answer for you on that. Uh, I mean, I, honestly, if it's short, it has a much better chance. Just just because the hosts are so busy. Um, and, you know, a lot of publicists that I've worked for over the years, you know, if they've been kind of in the NPR orbit long enough, they start getting to know the hosts. So I would say, no matter what trends are, it really depends on the individual personality of the host. So if you know the host and you can say, oh, this would be a great book for Audie Cornish, you know, then you have a much better shot at getting something on the air. So you mentioned that you were just reading a book for an event. Tell us about the sort of events that you do. Oh, yeah. So that's that's always really fun. Um, there's a couple different things that I do. Um, anybody who's ever been to a convention has been to a panel, um, and I frequently get asked to moderate panels, uh, I think, with you sometimes, Gina. Yes? Yep. You've moderated at least one panel with me. <laughs> Yay! So, and I love doing that, um, although I always get incredibly nervous beforehand. Um, oh, you're so great at it. Oh, shucks. Um, I, I try real hard. Uh, so yeah, I do that. And then I do um, one-on-one interviews with authors at bookstores and also at the National Book Festival here in D.C. at the Convention Center. Um, and those are kind of like the thing that I was doing on uh, a couple of days ago. That was actually really great. A lot of these are, are run by local bookshops. And there's a bookshop called East City Books that's on Capitol Hill. And they do this series called Horror on the Hill, where they do like spooky ghost story type things. And they do them in this super spooky chapel at Congressional Cemetery, which is this historical cemetery in D.C. So like... I, you know, I went there and it was a couple of days after Halloween and they still had like, you know, plastic skulls everywhere and flickering lights. And, you know, I was sitting down there with Daniel Jose Older to talk about this beautiful book that he's written, The Book of Lost Saints, which definitely has a ghost in it. Um, and that was so fun. So, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I do. And then you also said that sometimes you get pulled into on the floor cut radio coverage. Uh, like when you're at New York Comic Con or San Diego or perhaps at the National Book Festival, how does that sort of thing work? Do they like call you up and they're like, Petra, we have a story? <laughs> no, that kind of stuff is actually all planned in advance unless there's some big breaking news that hasn't happened so far. Um, usually what happens is, and this tends to happen mostly for San Diego Comic Con, at New York I'm more of a just a participant in panels. Um, I might go up there to report a story, but um, I'm not act- actively covering the con. Uh, I think San Diego, more news tends to get made at San Diego. And what will happen with that is, you know, beginning a month or so out, you know, I'll start talking to my colleagues and to our Los Angeles editor about what kind of stories we want to report. We'll liaise with the shows and be like, okay, I think I'm going to do a profile of author XYZ. Are you interested in it? I'm going to, or I'll talk to our homepage editors and say, I'm going to write a digital convention diary. Are you interested in it? Um, Here and now, for example, always wants me to do kind of a, a what we call a two-way, an interview, um, sometimes from the convention floor, just to give them the layout of what's there in a given year, what's popular, what people are interested in. Um, But yeah, that, I don't generally get pulled into that. Um, That's just, that's all stuff that we plan beforehand. And then what do you do? Like, are, is it like 
we would like an interview. Petra, go go forth and find the interview in your like planning for San Diego. Or are people kind of coming to you and saying like it's the anniversary of this convention this year that's what we want the story to be about like here are the five people to talk to um well so interestingly i did do a story on the 50th anniversary of san diego comic-con and that i don't know how the original idea came up it might have it was in one of the planning conversations with my editor in los angeles but once the germ of that idea happened and once that story was assigned to me it was entirely up to me to find the people that I was going to talk to, to figure out what the scenes were going to be. Um, That was all on me. Um, Or, for example, the other thing that I did at San Diego this year was I profiled Dylan McConus um, because Queen of the Sea had just come out, and it's so beautiful and lovely and wonderful. Um, And that was a thing where I knew the book was coming out, had followed her work for years online, and was like, that is a cool person I want to talk to. I'm going to see if one of the shows is interested in a piece where I talk to her. And luckily, Weekend Edition Saturday was interested. Um, so, so you're putting on another hat, which is a like radio producer hat again, where you're just pitching shows with like, hey, let's do this show about this thing. I'm yeah. a journalist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I have I have relationships, particularly with the weekend shows, with Weekend Edition Saturday and Sunday. Um, they do a lot of book stuff. Um, and I can and also their their area is right next to the arts desk. So I can like walk 50 feet over to, to one of their producers and be like, yo, I'm going to San Diego, do you want this story? In fact, I'm doing a story for them for this weekend. Uh, another author story, a woman that I interviewed in London who'd written a book about mudlarking on the Thames and pulling historical artifacts out of the mud. Uh, and so I went mudlarking with her, um, and it was really cool, and it's going to be on Weekend Edition Saturday this weekend. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. That sounds amazing. It was awesome, man. I found a chunk of medieval pottery, and she was like, you're probably the first person to touch that since it went into the river. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, hell <laughs> That's yeah. That's awesome. So, cool. so you've, you know, done some phone calls, sent a lot, out a lot of emails, and then you just show up at the convention center with, like, a recorder and a radio. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, yes, and then... It all happens in live time. <laughs> well, I mean, I will have carefully arranged with publicists, you know, for for example, so like I'm going to do a profile of, of an author or a cartoonist or whoever. Um, so I'll arrange with the publicist, okay, let me interview this person in a quiet space so that we can actually just have a conversation. And then what I'll do is I'll want to go get a couple of scenes. So is she signing? Can I be at the signing? Can I talk to the fans? Can I stand over her shoulder with a microphone and record audio of her interacting with people? Because, you know, that's what makes the piece really pop, right? Is kind of the scene where you put this person into the context of their fans and see how they interact. And you have some kind of... um. I don't know. Just just a, a moment of sponta- something spontaneous that wasn't planned. It's so I've seen from like the author's side, like your publicist will basically give you a you know a Google Doc or whatever that's like your itinerary for the weekend, and you definitely notice like if there are a lot of interviews set up, there's like tiers of like is this person coming and talking to you five minutes in the booth of your publisher? <laughs> are you going to another location where it's quieter? Are you going to like a real actual like very quiet room for their import? Like it's it's because I mean your publicist of course is like you have a lot to do and there's like a sort of. Uh, 
tension between like what are the needs of this particular person you're talking to and like what is the prestige not to be like an asshole about this but like what's the prestige of their publication versus like what are the demands on your time and how am I going to balance all these forces against mm-hmm. each other uh it's a very delicate for 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 in demand authors uh that I, that I have I have seen their itineraries and they are oh, yeah. bonkers yeah yeah and I'm always I'm always really grateful when people set aside time to talk to me um especially I mean San Diego Comic Con is kind of hilarious they don't give two beans about NPR <laughs> I don't even think they expect us to be there so you have all this footage that you've recorded are you then editing it and like putting the story together. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you go back to your Airbnb. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's not an Airbnb. I sublet a condo from a friend. Um, but it's awesome. There's like six of us that are always there every year. It's great. It's awesome. Um, it's these people that I see once a year, but we just have this intense bond because <laughs> San Diego is so intense. Um, so yeah, so I have my laptop. I for, Actually, when I was talking about being a producer, I forgot to mention this. You are also using audio editing software to cut down interviews or to pull out sound bites uh, and to record your own voice tracks and then to lay that all up into something that somebody back in DC can turn into what you hear on the radio. So yeah, once I've gotten all my sound, um, I come back to the condo and I sit there until two in the morning <laughs> and I go back through my tape. Um, thank God for transcription software because in the past, we used to have to just listen to and transcribe, you know, an hour or two of tape. And that was really, really challenging. But now, you know, we plug it all into the transcription software, and at least it gives you an idea of what's there. So I'll go through it and I'll pull out what I think are the most interesting pieces of sound. And then I'll write my own copy around it. And then I'll record that. Um, This is a fun reporter trick. uh, (laughs) Because we don't have actual sound booths in rented condos. So I hide in the bedroom and I pull the quilt over my head because it serves as kind of a more or less adequate sound baffle. So uh, I've heard closet a lot. Cl- yeah, this place, it doesn't have closets. You can get into it. it only has like these sliding doors that fit like a hanger. It's terrible. Uh, so I hide in the, in the corner of the bedroom and pull the quilt over my head and I'm sweltering, but at least I get some decent sound. Yeah. And then I'll do what's called a layup which is where I take my voice tracks and the actualities. So that's the person talking and then the ambience, which is the background noise or the scenery. Um, And I will lay it up in our audio editing program on kind of a four panel mix. And I don't, a, a lot of people who are more proficient than me at the software can actually like do the filtering and the mixing and make it sound beautiful themselves. I don't, I just, lay it up roughly and then I write out my script with instructions on where things should fade in and fade out and what needs to be done in terms of filtering and tweaking to make it sound better. And I send it to Washington, D.C. and our lovely, wonderful engineers make it into beautiful radio. I appreciate you also going through this because I I definitely get the sense that, as is true with publishing, honestly, depending on where you work, there's slightly different terminology that gets used for different jobs. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) There's so much weird terminology within NPR. Like, it's a little bit better now, but it used to be that, like, different shows had different terms for the same thing. (laughs) So, like, depending on where you were in the building, like, a tiny piece of sound would be a button or a bleeble or a chatter or a... (laughs) It's a whole thing. Petra, are there things that you wish authors knew about how consumer media or about how NPR worked? Like, are there questions you get all the time or just like... I mean, I think people know this, but it bears repeating that 
we are a 24-hour breaking news organization and, you know, we cannot control the news cycle. So we have an internal system called the Dibs system where shows can claim books and then other shows can't do them. The Dibs system does not work for beans because people don't respect it. So if you have a question about the Dibs system, you can always ask me. Um, but, you know, there's always confusion about is this show going to do the book? Are they not? Did they dibs it and then drop it? And that stuff is never personal. It is not about you. It is about the news cycle. Like if you got blown off or we dibs your book and recorded the interview and then dropped it, it's it's probably just because some crazy stuff happened in the world and we had to de- dedicate our airtime to that. Um, and I, I think people know that, but it always bears repeating. Like it just, it's never personal. You're You're wonderful. We love you. The news cycle, though, that's another thing. So is there anything else about how, you know, either NPR books specifically or kind of reader-focused book coverage in general works that you wish authors are more aware of? No, because honestly, I tip. maybe this is something they need to know, I typically don't deal with authors. Um, you are much more likely to get a response out of me if you have your publicist email me. That's what I would say, is, is just... Um, know that I don't deal directly with authors. Sorry. No, it, I mean, it's interesting, especially for comics, because so much more of it is self-published than in other genres. It's like, it makes it tricky for people to navigate sometimes. Yeah, it, it also, it's tricky in romance, too, um, because a lot of really great romance right now is self-published. Um, and in those cases, we rely on word of mouth. We rely on stuff like well, like Edelweiss, you know, <laughs> you know, you know which authors you want to pay attention to and or or conventions, you know, you go and look around at conventions and see what's cool um, or you have contacts in the community. It is harder. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it, I mean, I think it's important for people to understand this because I, I feel like uh, when authors are sort of deciding the best way to put their book into the world, when they think about working with publishers, they're mostly thinking about stuff like, oh, my book will be in Barnes and Noble, or like, oh, I'll have like somebody else will pay to print it, and like that kind of thing, which is, of course, like super important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they're often not thinking as much about the sort of publicity infrastructure. People talk about a lot about how they feel like their book didn't get any publicity, quote unquote. But I feel like almost all books have a publicist who is at least a little bit in charge of it and at least will send a roundup to somebody like you to be like, oh, here's the books coming out this Mm -hmm. season. And that person wouldn't otherwise have access to you if they didn't have a publicist. Even if you're like the lowest priority (laughs) of a publicist, you still have a publicist. You know what it is? Like I, this, and I don't know what, what this says about me. I think I prefer to deal with publicists because I just don't want to be influenced by whatever I might think about the author if I meet them in person. Just have somebody neutral and third party pitch me your book, then I will feel way less conflicted about like, I really like you, but do I have to cover your book? You know, like, I don't know. I think it feels more ethical to me to go through a third party. <laughs> well, because you're not, you're matchmaking books. You're not yeah. matchmaking authors. You're not like, hello, NPR uh, audience. Would you like to have dinner with this author? <laughs> <laughs> no, but would you like to read their book? And on a on related note, so, I mean, this is kind of a general question, mm-hmm. but, like, what are some of the best and worst parts of your job from your perspective? I would say they're kind of the same thing, which is the vast number of books I have to read. Because, I mean, dear God, I have a union job where they pay me to read fantasy novels. 
what? But like, also, if you have to do what you love for work, sometimes then you don't love it as much. So it's it's a double-edged sword. Um, but generally, I fall on the, whoa, that's great side of things. Although catch me right before I'm prepping for like book expo when I've stupidly agreed to do three panels and I've decided I have to read every book by every person on every panel that I'm doing, then I might be a little cranky. Oh, yeah, likewise. Like I've been talking to people a lot recently how much I love doing freelance editorial, but then like talk to me when I'm like, I have to read this whole script in two days. And I'm like, throw me out the window. I mean, on the other hand, I like it because it means that I read things that I might not have otherwise. Um, so that's always cool. Like the discovery aspect of my job is great. Um, yeah, it's just sometimes <laughs> sometimes I want to do like what I did last night, which is take home a book that I really wanted to read just for me. <laughs> Yeah, that maybe came out like multiple years ago. Oh, God, I'm so bad about that. Like when I have five books that I have to read for work, inevitably what I'm going to go do is reread some fantasy series from the 90s. You're a human being. (laughs) Yes, I am. You have needs. And my needs are to reread the damn Wheel of Time again. (laughs) Oh, my God, of all things to reread, though. Well, the thing is, it has, if you skip the middle six books, it has immense reread value. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually going to be my next cosplay. I was Sabriel from Garth Nix's Old Kingdom series this year at San Diego, and next year I'm going to be in Aes Sedai of the Green Aja. But I'm waiting for the TV show to come out so I can see what the costumes look like. That is extremely Uh. charming, every aspect of what you just said. (laughs) I can't wait. Okay, uh, Patrick, is there anything else that you want to talk about that we missed? Please come and check out our content at books.npr.org. There's all kinds of stuff there. There's years worth of reviews. There's the book concierge. There's our summer polls. There's author interviews. Um, You can find something great to read and hit me up on Twitter. I'll try to answer you if you need book recommendations. And where can they find the book concierge again? Yep, that is at npr.org slash best books. Can you give us some social handles also? Sure. Um... I am at NPR Books professionally and also NPR Books on Facebook and Tumblr. Um, If you want to hit me up personally, um, I don't do much but post cat pictures, but I am Petromatic in my personal life. That's P-E-T-R-A-M-A-T-I-C. I'm not on Instagram because I'm old. And I would urge people to not at you there to be like, can you cover my book? Oh, please don't. That is for cat photos, not for work. Yeah. If you want to pitch me something um, and you don't have a publicist, email books at npr.org. That's the official NPR Books account. Uh, That is always the best way if you want to hit me up to cover your book. Um, Please don't hit my personal Twitter account. That is a sacred space for cat pics. (laughs) Petra, thank you so much for talking to us today. This is, I mean, I am both a book nerd and a podcast nerd. Uh, and public radio in general. So I very much appreciate you walking us through all of this. It was absolutely my pleasure. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to Graphic Novel TK. Next week, we're going to talk about working with a publisher from the perspective of a cartoonist uh, and more specifically working with different publishers and how it can be different depending on who your team is. Yeah. And it's going to be great. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. 
You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com. Yeah, man, I go to Big Planet in Bethesda every month and I plunk down my money for a bag of single issues and then I take them home and put them on the couch because I'm so far behind. I don't know what to do anymore. I have cut books I bought at SPX like two years ago that I haven't read yet. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's the struggle. Yeah, and struggle is real.